As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Rates of Barrels. It's Monday, December 14th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris on this episode. We will discuss the latest round of moves made by the New York Mets. James McCann is now on board and the Mets have a new GM, so we'll talk about that. We also have a former Met returning to the States after a year in the KBO and some new homes for David Dahl and Hunter Renfro. Uh, once we talk through the news, we're going to look at some of the free agent predictions that Eno made at his piece last week and consider some new potential fits. You know, With the McCann domino falling, JT Realmuda may have another suitor or two emerging from the woodwork. We'll also get to a mailbag question or two as well. Eno, happy Monday. How was your weekend? It was good. It was good. We have pulled the kids out of school to quarantine them so that the grandparents can come. Um, and so this week will be hectic. <laughs> um, Bear with us. Yeah. Bear with us this week. Zoom's happening as we speak. Everybody in this house is on Zoom right now. Well, you've got good internet because the, the podcast is working so far. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. Let's get to it. The Mets added James McCann on a four-year deal over the weekend. I think he's fascinating because he was non-tendered two years ago. And as we were getting ready to record, I said, if you told me then that he was going to sign a multi-year deal with anybody at any point, I would have probably pushed back on that and to get you know four years at a pretty decent average annual value as well uh, is a pretty nice turnaround. I think the question I have, uh, as McCann goes, is a little more of an offensive question at this point. How much are you buying his improvements as a hitter that we've seen since the start of 2019? I think I buy it because one of the things that we've already seen from McCann is regression in terms of uh, the barrel rate. So like he had a bit of a a barrel rate explosion in 2019 uh, where he had the best exit velocity of his career and the best barrel rate, um, uh, second best barrel rate of his career, or at least the best in uh, the biggest sample. So um, he looked like he'd found something out there and his, uh, he'd sort of traded some strikeout rate for some power. 
Um, and then you saw in 2020 his barrel rate regressed, but it stayed pretty close. So like he had a 9.2% barrel rate in 2019, which uh, is not quite elite, but it's it's comfortably above average. It's sort of like top third of the league type thing. Um, and then in 2020, it was 8.7. So um, I think he can hit the ball hard. You know, I think he can he can hit for slugging. The question otherwise is, you know, uh, can he hit for batting average? Uh, can he can he get on base? Um, and that uh, is a little bit more of an up and down proposition for him. I mean, he's just um, uh, some years he walks a little bit more. Some years he has a little bit more batted ball luck. Uh, and his projections say uh, he will be about 20% worse than league average, which is only slightly below average for a catch, but it is kind of weird to see a team drop four years and $40 million and still be um, below average at the position by projections. Yeah, I think it's sort of like going up to a car lot and just paying the price that the sheet of paper on the window has on it as opposed to negotiating (laughs) down a little bit. It's a luxury the Mets have, right? You're not looking at the signing and going, oh, well, this is going to hurt them later. It's not going to really impact them later in any way at all. If McCann is a decent player for most of the contract, the Mets are going to be fine. Yeah, I, yeah, I think I agree with you. And also, one thing that we know is that Steamer doesn't have as much stat cast as other things. So you can see that his best two years by the stat cast numbers are his best two power years. And uh, projections have him going back below league average in terms of power. But if he doesn't do that, then maybe he's a league average bat. He also improved in framing last year, which was a small sample. But if that sticks, now you've got a guy who can frame, who can hit for power, uh, will murders lefties, and might be comfortably above league average. If he's comfortably above league average in year one, he'll be worth the money mostly uh, over the four-year deal. And he won't cost you whatever JTL Real Muto is asking for. Yeah, Real Muto probably get a fifth year and probably get almost double the AAV. I mean, closer to $20 million a year is kind of where I expect Real Muto's deal to end up. Uh, looking at McCann compared to other players at the position for a moment, just from a pure like, would-you-rather perspective, you've got McCann just outside the top 200 overall in early NFBC drafts, and that's based on not knowing where exactly he was going to play. I think the Mets having... Uh, an above-average lineup, if not a great lineup, give him a slight boost, potentially. He's not coming from a terrible spot with the White Sox. Of course, he's going to play a lot more now that he's in New York. But you've got McCann next to Mitch Garver, who's coming off one of the weirdest seasons possible, right? He was hurt, the K rate went through the roof, and that followed a 2019 breakout. I think it's interesting because in some ways, you know, I think Garver sort of shows a small sample downside for a player like McCann. I think they have similar flaws. Garver has shown that he hits the ball really hard, uh, does strike out a bit more than you'd like, but walks enough. You know, it's 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 actually a pretty good comp. It's just harder to go after the guy who's coming off of a 167, 247, 264 line, even though it was under 100 plate appearances in the shortened season. Yeah, and what we saw from Garver was a bit of a, a regression when it came to his stackcast numbers, just like we saw with James McCann. Um, but again, like, you know, the regression in uh, the stackcast numbers and what he actually put up, uh, they don't seem to sort of uh, agree with each other. 
but those expected slugging was 287 last year for for uh, Garver, so it was pretty bad regression. But he still hit the ball really hard, still hit the ball in the air. I'm taking Garver here because the upside is better, um, and the barrel rate was indistinguishable between Garver and McCann last year, and um, and Garver hits the ball harder. So I'm going to say that it was some weird fluke of the book somehow some book got out on him and he couldn't adjust his way out of it in that short of a season and so i'm gonna pick mcgarver here the other catcher kind of lumped in this area is jorge alfaro he of course also missed time on the covid list i think we have a really good sense of alfaro's strengths and weaknesses right he's always been tooled up but i've seen the write-ups i think it was eric longenhagen of fan graphs at one point who said that Jorge Alfaro might have the worst plate discipline in all of professional baseball. And that was only a couple of years ago. And it really, I don't think it was pure hyperbole. I think that was an actual tagline that could be fair. I mean, you could dig into it more and probably find somebody at a low level, the minors who strikes out more and walks less. But for someone who plays a lot in the big leagues, I think you have a clear cut contender for the, the honors that uh, Eric put on him. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I do have one uh, contender on his team. Uh, Lewis Brinson? No, No, actually, he walks, he walks, you know, he walks. What's interesting about this is that this guy's strikeout rate is not that bad, but he's the best bad ball hitter in baseball. Best bad ball hitter in baseball. Uh, all right, who is it? Corey Dickerson. Oh, really? I, I would just don't think of him as a bad ball hitter. Yeah, he just he 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 hits uh, pitches outside the zone. He's gonna have a, a terrible like that's why nobody's giving him any money, even though he's been good. You know what I mean? Is nobody's giving him a long term deal because he's kind of our our generation's Josh Hamilton. Uh, but they they do have these cool leaderboards on Baseball Savant called, Savant called um, Swing and Take, and I want to see what that has to do. So it has uh, the zone sort of set up in heart, uh, shadow, chase, and waste. And it does have overall runs. J.D. Martinez is first. Anthony Rendon, Alex Bredman, Joey Votto, Christian Yelich, Mookie Betts, Mike Trout. So, you know, who you'd expect to kind of see um, at the top here. J.D. Martinez in 2018 had the best season. And that's actually pretty interesting because you're talking about uh, plate discipline, right? And, um, you know, J.D. Martinez has talked uh, a lot about uh, how he didn't, how he was missing the in-game video. So maybe we just didn't understand how much of JD Martinez's value came from like just pitch selection. Yeah, and maybe he had a harder time doing it when he couldn't just be like, "Was that a strike?" Like maybe that's what he's doing a lot of times. Is like, "Was that actually a strike?" Where's this umpire strike zone? Maybe that's what's missing almost more than like. I'm going to like like make a tweak to my batting stance because of something I see on the video like right now? I don't think so. Yeah, that's an interesting way to think about it because with, with in-game video, I think my brain was always going back to what can't you figure out about the pitchers you're likely to see that day, especially the starter. You know, what, can, what can't you figure out ahead of time? But if it is something pertaining to the umpire and how balls and strikes are being called on that particular day, that would be one of those things that you just wouldn't know until you get into that game situation. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, I guess you could maybe learn a little bit, like you could re-see a pitch, right? Be mm -hmm. like, oh, man. Like, even like, what was that, right? Sometimes you might swing and miss at a pitch and be like, 
wait, what was that? You know, and then you could look back, oh, that was a slider. Anyway, if you take all runs and you look at the bottom of the list, um, a, a name does, uh, another name on Texas comes up. Oh, let's see. I'm trying to think of a player like Corey Dickerson. I'm going to say Willie Calhoun. Think of, no, no, that's why Dickerson's K-rate has got you all messed up. Think of somebody more like Alfaro. <laughs> oh, I mean, Danny Santana? Uh, no, Odor. Oh, yeah, Odor. That's Odor that. in 2017 Jeez. had the worst season by plate discipline uh, by the swing take runs that they've got here. Trying to find out where Alfaro will... Uh, I'm going to venture a guess as you look into that that you're probably taking James McCann over Jorge Alfaro. I feel like that's where you're going with this. I might. Uh, plate discipline is something that uh, I'm a little bit biased towards. Like, I... I like pitchers. Oh, Jorge Alfaro's 2019th ranked 1,461 out of 1,578. It's pretty bad. Yeah. But James McCann's 2018 was 1,560th. <laughs> oh, no. They are more similar than we thought. Yeah, they are. <laughs> um. McCann's strikeout rate is actually a little bit better than Alfaro's. I might take McCann over Alfaro. But it's a reasonable group to have together. Yeah. Uh, but I think I'm with you. I'm, I'm Garver and then McCann and then Alfaro. And so far, uh, that's how the, the market's been going is, is close to that. It's McCann, then Garver, then Alfaro. And then you get to the old guys like Posey and Molina. Posey at this point is tough because, yeah, he's a veteran who had a year off. And you could almost argue that a year to rest for a catcher especially, might enable him to come into 2021 with a body that's more refreshed and recovered than it has been mm. in a long time. So I could see that with Yachty. Another year to get that hip right. He's just the classic. I'd rather be a year too soon than a year too late as far as the, the cliff dive for his offensive performance. Yeah, because you could talk yourself into it and be like, nobody's buying Yachty and like I'll get him super cheap. But like, eh, there's a reason they're getting him super cheap. He could hit, you know, like 240 with like eight home runs next year. Yeah. <laughs> so <he's laughs> that like, is possible. <laughs> and the upside is not that much where you're like, ooh, I got 260 and 14 home runs for a buck. Okay. That's <laughs> maybe probably about right. <laughs> <laughs> you're risking zero. You're risking a zero dollar uh, performance for like a possible two dollar performance, basically. Yeah. It's not really going to get you anywhere the other Mets thing by the way uh, they hired a GM Jared Porter I think that was a, a move that drew a lot of praise around the game from various outlets and I think we talked about this briefly on our Friday episode the Mets are in a situation with Sandy Alderson there where they're still going to be a pretty strong Sandy Alderson influence on the org but it seems like they kind of found the type of person they were looking for in that you know Jared Porter can sort of defer to Sandy for now but then gradually make that role his own kind of growing into it right as a first time GM yeah it's surprising a couple things come to mind about this it's surprising to me that he didn't get a more legitimate chance sooner you know like a just a full like here you go run with it because he was a part of you know like world championships how do you describe that what do you World Championships, World Series, yeah. World Series champion team. Yeah, I guess that's the right way to do it. So weird. It's like, 
it's not like we invite the NPB over and like take part. Anyway, <laughs> um, championship teams like the he's involved in the Red Sox and the Cubs uh, when they won. So you'd think somebody would have said, "Oh, proven winner, let's go." Um, and then in this case, it's almost like a, a little bit of a babysitting situation where they're like, "We think he'll be good. He'll grow into it. Will he grow into it, man? He's been in the in baseball for a while. He's anyway. That's one thing that surprised me too. The other thing that surprises me um, is uh, just seeing this through the lens of kind of uh, meta media critic critique. Front office people do curry favor by leaking things. <laughs> and when you see like a bunch of people like uh, lauding a guy for a hire, sometimes you just wonder like, oh, is he like one of your sources? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and I've just been thinking about that, you know, because this is the time of the season to be thinking about that sort of thing. Think about... Um, the way that even um, Cashman was talking about Gleyber Torres's defense. So now he talks publicly about Gleyber Torres's defense so that he can back that up and is talking to basically the agents of DJ Lake saying, hey, your position is being taken by Gleyber Torres because his defense is bad. So we're not going to give you $100 million. There's a reason people say the things they say. Yeah. I think of like eight teams in on... Jackie Bradley Jr. Really? Really? Like, where'd that come from? Why? Well, probably what Jackie Bradley mean? Jr.'s agent. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And the mystery team is always the funniest. It's like, I mean, that team could exist, and every team every team that overpays was worried about the mystery team. Um, but it's, I think, you know, and then people get mad at me for some of my, my uh, free agent fits things because my strategy was, hey, I'm going to look at needs, I'm going to look at depth charts, and I'm going to look at money. And I'm going to try to, you know, figure it out that way. A lot of this is augury, which is like sort of just like trying to, you know, look into your crystal ball. So I was just like, I'm going to use more of the number stuff. And I'm going to treat the rumors as like at least 50% noise. I don't think you're wrong to treat them that way because you have a pretty good idea of how that particular sausage is made. And, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I, I think we should get to Real Mudo next just because he kind of fits into this early part of our conversation, right? Real Mudo to the Mets made a lot of sense based on need, based on how they're spending. Since they signed McCann, they're obviously not going to also sign JT Real Mudo. In your piece, I think the Astros and Mets were the two finalists. We talked about the Phillies probably being back in the running because you don't really put Dave Dombrowski in charge of your baseball operations if you're going to tear it down and rebuild and not spend money, right? That's just not yeah. really his core skills. So you could probably swap the Phillies back into that list, but maybe wonder, are there any dark horses? Are there any teams that could swoop in somewhat unexpectedly now and become legitimate players to land JT Real Muto? Yeah, because I think the thing is, it, it's just there's not an obvious suitor. The obvious suitor, I guess, would be the Phillies. But then the Phillies also don't want to just overpay just because they're the only one. But right now, if I said there's an obvious landing place for JTL Rumto, you would say the Phillies. Because if, let's just look at the bottom 10 by depth charts. You've got the Mariners not uh, spending on JTL Rumto. Nationals could be kind of a dark horse, but they just laid off a bunch of people. They don't seem to be acting like they're going to spend. Um, so, and if they did spend DJ LeMayhew might be the best way because they have the worst infield, non-shortstop infield 
in baseball in Washington. So I think DJ LeMahieu would be more bang for your buck. They've already got sort of a representative catcher, if not a great one. The Mets are on there still, but they just signed again. So, <laughs> um, Orioles not spending. Uh, Tigers. I mean, like, I think the Orioles or Tigers could jump in, like, if if it's like four for sixty and nobody betters that, or maybe even four for eighty. Just be like, okay, he'll be here for four years, and we spend some money, and you know, like, uh, it was less than people thought, I guess. But I don't think I wouldn't consider them serious contenders. So. We have the Phillies and maybe the Nationals. And the, the Marlins aren't going to spend on a catcher, I don't think. Uh, the Phillies are there. The Rangers aren't going to spend on a catcher. The Rockies aren't going to spend on a catcher. And the Rays are at the very bottom of this. And they would be a crazy dark horse. But they just they don't have the money. I think they're going to try and trade for a catcher. If the Snell thing happens, I bet there's a catcher in that trade. So anyway, uh, not an obvious in the bottom 10. So then you go to the middle 10 and there he'd be replacing somebody that was all right. Uh, but I think in the middle 10, the Astros were the most compelling place for me. I could see them. They have a bit of money actually. And if they replace, basically replace, they can, if they were in my piece, I pointed out that the difference between what, um, JTL Ramuto is projected to do and what the, at Martin Maldonado is projected to do for the Astros at the plate is the same difference as what Brantley was projected to do and what his replacement in the field. I, I, I forget his name. It's like Chickasaw or something. I've never seen a name like that. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> who is this I guy? I have no idea who, who you're talking the, about right look at now. The, look at the right left fielder for the Astros. Who is that dude? Miles Straw? No. The guy's name <laughs> looks like Chickasaw. Chaz Chickasaw. McCormick. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't mirror, you kind of like mashed in part There's of Miles Straw's name in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the difference between Brantley and Chaz McCormick is the same as so. What you could do is get the offense at a premium position with Rio Moto and then go get somebody like Jock Peterson for not much money in the outfield, right? I think that might, that might, I think the Astros might do something like that because then you think about whoa, their infield is uh, JT Rimuto, Bregman, um, uh, Correa. Uh, Altuve and Gurriel that's pretty good infield you know mm-hmm. offensively even defensively like it's a pretty good infield so um, I, I think the Astros are a pretty good dark horse so I would say right now it's Astros Phillies Nationals and I and I don't really have I, I know the Blue Jays are rumored but I just don't buy it dude the Blue Jays are rumored uh, have the projected fourth best catching situation right now yeah I wonder I mean I, I think the Rays to me they seem like they're very unlikely to spend this way. It's not impossible, though. And they literally don't have a catcher on the depth chart on some <laughs> sites. <laughs> so if you take some of the, the Charlie Morton AAV, that, that's gone, right? And, and you think about just having that, and maybe you spend a little more. They didn't get the bump from the postseason the way they would have in a normal year. But it's not impossible. And it absolutely makes their team a lot better and fills a clear area of need. So I had low, low probability, but that's one spot I keep coming back to. I'm like, you know what? That actually makes a lot of sense. And uh, the angels, because I, because they get linked to Bauer and the amount of money to spend, even on a one year deal to get Bauer would seemingly put you in the running for someone like Ray Mudo. If you don't get Bauer, I don't think they would get both. 
But if Bauer goes somewhere else, I could see the Angels decide to improve that way. Angels have a bit of a top 10 projection right now. So, I mean, that's why the Dodgers have been have been rumored they could move Will Smith the third. It was in Ken Rosenthal's comment. I just, it does happen sometimes, I think. But I think most of the time when a team signs a player, they have a need. You know what I mean? <laughs> they're like... I don't know. I don't. I, you know, the Rays right now have uh, the only outfield in baseball that's projected to be above average all three spots. It would surprise me if the Rays went out and signed an outfielder for a lot of money. Right. That would be very surprising. <laughs> That'd be very surprising. <laughs> so I, the Angels really need pitching. I think they can make more of an impact. If I know a run saved or a run produced is 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 still a run saved or run produced, but you can still make more of an impact if you have a. You have a real need on a team. So I just think the Angels will pay on pitching. I think they'll get Tanaka, Sagano, or Bauer. And that's that's my prediction of the Angels. Yeah, that definitely seems like an area they're going to improve via free agency. They are also among the teams that don't have a lot of prospects to move. You know, they're not, they could trade Joe Adele for a potential windfall, but I don't see them doing that. Maybe Brandon Marsh is actually more tradable because of the way. That roster's built right now. If you keep Adele, you've got the older outfielders already locked in. I mean, if they go crazy, they could trade Max Stassi and Brandon Marsh and Griffin Canning for Blake Snell. It's not that crazy. Not that crazy. It'd be and a good fit for the Angels. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's... But I just don't like... When you're like thinking of stuff like that, it's fine to think of that. But just think of all the things that have to happen to make it true. <laughs> Like I, I like I, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't like if I was a team, I wouldn't sign a guy uh, that played like I wouldn't sign a shortstop, I wouldn't trade for Lindor if I were the Dodgers, unless I had a plan already in place for what I'm doing with Corey Seager. Yeah, you either decided internally you're going to re up him and play him at third base, or right, you're just letting him go and this is, just, tendering a qualifying. Like offer. I wouldn't. Like this is more true in fantasy. I wouldn't trade for a player that plays at a position where they're redundant on my team, with the idea that I would then get a lot of value in the next trade. Because you lose leverage. Teams yeah, know that you yeah, have they, to make they, a deal like, if, if the pieces don't fit. I know if there's not have, a reasonable way. You're two cat. You're not going to play this catcher at first. You know, in a fantasy sense, right? I know you have two catches that are too good, I know, and, and I know you're not going to want to play them at first. So I'm going to hold out for a better deal for your now that you have two catchers. You know. The order of events absolutely matters. You can't make a trade that is contingent upon another trade eventually happening That's to fully That's make sense. Yeah. At least in the short term, maybe in the long term, you unless can you're like do something different. You're sending out contracts and 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 you know like the the phone calls. You know you've got the handshake agreement on both sides, and it's almost like a three way or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's kind of a different situation. But you can't not have that already in the works if you're going to put something together that requires something else to happen like why would the astros trade for lindor like you'd have to you'd have to come up with some really convoluted way to make it work <laughs> they yeah they the answer is they to play probably second. won't <laughs> and they're cutting altuve like what no no that's not <laughs> so, gonna happen so i think that's why that's why i'd use the way that i use and that's why i would say that i think the most i think phillies is most likely Astros is the best dark horse because I think they might spend some money. Uh, and the Nationals is the third sort of duh situation. But 
will you know will they spend? But that's fair with uh, a few crazy long shots also just being fits that won't do it for one reason or another. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Fit is important, and that's why I'm excited about uh, David Dahl going to Texas because this is a team that, prior to calling up Leody Tavares, didn't have a true center fielder on the active roster. And with Dahl, they get a boost in the corner and depth in center in case Tavares needs more time in the minors. I don't think it's out of the question that you know Leody gets off to a slow start in 2021 he goes down. Well, now they've got a guy that can actually play some center field right there on the roster. It was cheap. It was like one year, $3 million. I can't believe it. I, I'm surprised more teams weren't interested in Dahl because you also get uh, arbitration years still left on him too. So it's not like it's one and done. Like You can actually keep him around at a pretty affordable price the next few years. And there's a few things we've talked about in recent episodes that should be brought up again with Dahl. The first being the dimensions at New Arlington are not hitter friendly. So it's not a great place for David Dahl as far as an offensive environment goes, even though it's a good place for him to go in terms of not really looking over his shoulder for playing time. And I think you brought this up uh, when Dahl was non-tendered. It is important to realize that while those road splits are bad, or at least they're not all that inspiring, from Dahl's time in Colorado, that's not necessarily the player he's going to be outside of Coors all the time either because we've talked a lot about the difficulties of going on the road, just the changes with VMI and air density and and just different factors that impact players and how they perform making those transitions. DJ LeMahieu, an extreme example of how it can go right when you land in a perfect park for you. This is not a perfect park for David Dahl. A perfect park for David Dahl might have been a park that boosts left-handed power, right? If he landed in Milwaukee, like Milwaukee boosts left-handed homers as much as I think any park in the game, that would have played up and enabled him to make a pretty smooth transition out of Colorado. Now I think you look at Dahl and say, okay, he's probably a 260, 270 type hitter, and maybe he's a 20 to 25 home run guy. He's probably not getting 30 plus. I don't think he's shown quite enough raw power to expect that. And a lot of how his value shakes out will hinge on staying healthy, which has been a problem in his career, and whether or not he's at least a useful contributor as a base stealer, right? If he's an 8 to 10 steals guy, that actually makes a pretty big difference. That sort of separates him from a lot of other guys that fall into this same sort of bucket, like 260, 270, 330, 340 OBP, fairly common skills, but if you tack 8 to 10 steals on top of 20 homers over a full season, 
that really works in our current environment. Yeah, I tried to take the Jeff Zimmerman rule of uh, two times away plus one times home uh, to get an, an idea of what he might do. And um, for his career, that would produce a slash line of 270, 320, 465. That's pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Got some speed. Uh, that's above average power, above average on base ability. Um, we've talked that the stat cast numbers on Dahl completely tanked last year, but that's related to the shoulder injury. Um, you know, you'd have to think that a full season uh, could get him back to his old max EV and old barrel rates, um, which were fairly consistent uh, going into 2020. So I, I like it. Uh, it's interesting to me that on the depth charts uh, for the Rangers on Fangraphs, they still have Leota Tavares playing in center and Gallo, Willie Calhoun, and Dahl sort of splitting the uh, corners. Uh, I will point out, though, that even with their projections and giving Leota Tavares full time, they say he's going to be such a bad bat that he would basically be a replacement player. And if that's true, I've done some research on you know, how likely players are that are projected to be replacement player that are to hit their plate appearance thresholds, and the answer is not very. So um, I think that uh, it's more likely that Dahl plays center. I mean, that's what you that's how you're talking, right? Well, yeah, I think at the very least, you're not worried about his playing time because of their need at a position that he can play that the other outfielders other than Tavares really can't, right? You're, you're pushing... Gallo so too much. You can't put Calhoun out there. there in center. Right. He's. I don't think he's a fourth outfielder plus. I think he has a spot to call his own because of his versatility, and they can kind of decide whether it's a corner or center based on other factors. And I think the interesting thing about the Rangers, we talked about this with like Elvis Andrews being a bench player now. It seems that like they're ready to just admit that Rugi Odor is a sunk cost. Uh, you can look at this team now. Chu's gone, so there's there's one other veteran out of the picture right now. So I think you can make it work where you have Dahl and Gallo in the corners, Tavares in center, and Willie Calhoun as your regular DH, DH, and you can kind of rotate those guys that way, and that works too. But then if Tavares flops and you know he's good, he's a good defender, but he's just not hitting enough to keep him around for a stretch, you can option Tavares down, play That's Dahl in there. center. And easily backfill in a corner. Like it's it's easy enough to find a bench corner outfield platoon or, or some sort of arrangement or that DH, makes sense. You know, like or, or yeah. do more of a kind of a rotating door at DH. Right. So I think this is a situation where he will not be jerked around for playing time, which happened all too yes. often early in Dahl's career. The the big risk is this because I even looked at his defense. His defense was well above average in 2019 and well below average in 2020. So basically, every stack has metric on him said he was hurt. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, I mean, the bet is when he's healthy, he's, he goes back to the guy he was before. So, and he's not so old to, to think that's crazy. It's, it's all about health with him. I mean, that's, I'd hate to be obvious, but sometimes when you look at the stack has, you go, oh, man, he really didn't hit. The, well, yeah, he was hurt. <laughs> I wonder how they're going to build their lineup in Texas. I mean, I'm looking at the roster resource projection. They've got Tavares leading off. I don't think that's going to hold up. I think he's a bottom third of the order hitter for now, probably yeah. their nine guy, maybe the eight hitter, whatever. I don't think he's leading off to begin the year. They're probably going to lead off a lefty because Dahl, Calhoun, 
Gallo and Nate Lowe are all lefties, and that's probably four of their five best hitters. So you got to find a way to break those guys up. Uh, Nick Solak probably is high up. Yeah, I think he's up there. And you don't want Isaiah Kiner-Falef is a nice defender, but like Tavares, you don't really want him in the top third of your order. You want him more bottom third. So I think he comes down. They don't have a strong offensive catcher. So uh, for now, Sam Huff, I think Joey eventually will do that. <laughs> they're going to do something a little bit different, but yeah, it's 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 a funny lineup. But I, I at least I like the fact that they are taking some interesting flyers. They're taking some flyers on guys that the fantasy community and even me specifically, I've been going want after. To have them have a full shot. I want to see what they can do. And yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So they're at least opening up those opportunities. So I, I do like what the Rangers are doing so far, and I'm sure they're not done. Guzman, Jesus. I ne- I never saw it with him. I just didn't. I, I couldn't see it. Uh, Hunter Renfro has a new team as well. He gets a small deal to go to Boston. And we were looking before the show at how he fits into that situation. He's coming off a miserable year, of course. His only season in Tampa Bay. As a righty going into Fenway, I think this could work out pretty well. How likely are we to see an outfield that features Benintendi in left, Renfro in right, and Alex Verdugo in center? on a regular basis and then just JD locked in as the DH at this point. Is that the default build for the Red Sox this season? I think so. There's a little question of what happens to Michael Chavis, uh, considering he's a right-hander that almost profiles very similarly to Renfro. As a hitter? Yeah, I think that's kind of a similar profile. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe he ends up more an infielder, kind of helping between second and first. Maybe this isn't a good sign for how much they value Chavis, which is, I think kind of reading the tea leaves they haven't treated him like a big part of the future remember they signed a second baseman last year that was terrible jose peraza yeah so no we've got uh, almost a full season of chavis in the big leagues between 19 and 20 put together 137 games 540 plate appearances he's hit 23 homers and stolen five bases with a 241 304 424 line a 32.8 strikeout rate it's an 87 WRC plus, so 13% below a league average hitter. And since he's not a good defender, that steers him toward this sort of super utility or at least not everyday sort of role, even though his power and speed is a little bit intriguing for us. Yeah, and he has that sound like sort of in terms of max exit velo, it's good. I mean, it was 114 in 2019 and went down to 108 last year, but um, I think in terms of like hitting the ball hard, like get a 9% barrel rate in 2019, I, I still see something in there in terms of hitting the ball hard. And I could still see him kind of taking a job with a good year, you know, and, and going with it and being better than his projections. But his projections have him for being below league average in almost every facet of the game. The only yeah. place that projections say he's above average is barely in power and isolated power but walk rate strikeout rate you know average obp slugging you know you know wrc plus like fielding base running (laughs) it's just they're all negatives wow (laughs) um i still have some hope for him but i don't think that this signing is very good for him because at the very least you could have said that thought okay at least chavis will be a corner outfield mashing righty renfro type but now they have a Renfro type named Hunter Renfro. The original, famous original Hunter Renfro. <laughs> uh, and Renfro's projection, yeah, comes out at 230, 300, 468, and 97 WRC+. I mean, that's in line with, yeah, it's in line with like Nomar Mazzara. 
Uh, it's in line with Brad Miller, who's still out there and can play a few spots, even though he's not really a good defender. So it's one of those profiles that if you're not spending money, you take a chance on it because when it goes right, you get a guy who's about 20% better than league average because the power sort of just carries everything. And when it goes wrong, you get a guy who's about 20 to 30% worse than league average because he's striking out too much. So high variance, but low risk, you know, when you're talking about $3 million for one year. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know how much it has to do with long-term. I think that Verdugo is a short-term center fielder. So on a one, you know, on a one-year plan, it's fine. But I think they're probably still looking long-term for their next center fielder of the future kind of deal. So yeah, yeah. that's above average for Verdugo or okay, but not what you'd expect from uh, a true center fielder. But this is a team that will look a lot better pretty quickly if they get a bounce back from JD, if Renfro is at least a league average sort of hitter. Ben Intendi was a disaster for the little bit that we saw him. I don't think that's necessarily indicative of what he's going to be. I've talked about Xander Bogarts uh, kind of quietly reaching this new level and, and people kind of overlooking that. There should be a Devers bounce back of some kind. Why did the Sox do this? The Sox are the most volatile franchise that I can think of almost. It's almost like the Marlins, but with more money, where they like, they're amazing one year. They win the championship. And then the next year, they're terrible. And you're just like, can't even recognize the same team. I could see this team putting it together pretty fast and being like, wow, this team is really good. They kind of look to me similar to Philly on paper right now. Their problems are in pitching, and the Phillies have a much better core for their rotation, but especially like, with what Chris if Sale, Sale still comes working back. back you know, and, and is Sale. Then all of a sudden, Eovaldi is your two. Maybe and Rodriguez is your three. That's not that terrible. It's like no, two signings away terrible. from having an okay staff and like a killer lineup. Yeah, the lineup should score runs. Like I have little doubt about that offense putting it together. I mean, even Bobby Dahlbeck, if he's your six or seven hitter, he's got big power even with some swing and miss. Jeter Downs is going to be a part of this plan sooner rather than later too. So you look at second base, it's probably the That's one of the worst positions there, by yeah. projection. Like You're going to get a boost there from the jump when Downs shows up. So yeah, I think this is going to be one of the more interesting lineups in the American League, and they're going to be as good as they can out-hit their pitching or as good as they can manage their pitching. And what they do in that facet is going to be really interesting. As you were putting together your free agent predictions, were there any high-end pitchers? I know there's not a lot out there, but were there any of them that you linked to the Red Sox? I didn't, but I think... Um, I think they'd be better fits for Sugano and Bauer than Tanaka. And I don't think I see Tanaka like signing with the Red Sox. Every time we talk about Bauer, we think about places where he could go on short rest on a short-term deal where they could spend the high AAV. I think the Red Sox tick those boxes, and given their lack of depth, it would make sense. The problem was that they're, how close they were to the luxury tax. Oh, that's why they're not going to do it because of that. I mean, they're not, they're not, they're at 163, but like if Bauer might be 35 million. Yeah. So that, that puts them right at the luxury tax. That puts them like eight to nine million. But if that was their only buy this offseason, it might make sense. Spend $35 million on Trevor Bauer. And if he's healthy and sales healthy, then you have one of those high variance seasons and you're, you're back in the playoffs. Right. And you shorten up that rotation once you get there and you're talking about sale Bauer. Evaldi, hopefully a healthy Erod, yeah, and, then, and, and then that's figure it not out bad. On off days, and yeah. Do you like anybody in that bullpen? 
No. Look at no, all. No. <laughs> Sorry, that's the one place. I was like trying to be as positive as I could about the Red Sox. I was just like, I'm not going to say anything about the bullpen. <laughs> well, that's the that's the problem too, though, right? So if you have all these issues in the rotation and you have guys that have to go short or they just get, they get knocked around, you're going to blow out the bullpen. If you don't have good relievers in the first place, you're going to have a hard time protecting leads in games that you're winning and your bullpen's going to be exhausted by the time you get to the second half of the season because they're throwing more innings than anybody else out there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like Barnes. And I think, you know, it'd be nice if he was like your setup guy a little bit a little bit better than if he was like where you can kind of be more judicious about when you use him, where you use him, against who you use him. But as the only guy in a bullpen, just he makes me nervous. It's like Darwin's and Hernandez. It's like, okay, he's fine. He throws the ball hard. He has no idea where it's going. And, yeah. you know, has like legendary walk rates right now. I mean, <laughs> 20%. He walked 20% of the batters he saw last year. I know it's only eight innings. But for his career, he's walked 18%. That's almost double the league average. In any case, um, you know, good would be good to have around. But if he's your second best reliever, you need to do some work there. Yeah, definitely an area of need in Boston. And if they're worried about the luxury tax, it is going to be hard to do more than add one big piece like Bauer, if they're even willing to do that at this point. Uh, That, to me, it makes it kind of interesting to look at someone like Chris Flexen, who comes back from the KBO after one year, gets a two-year deal with the Mariners. Chris Flexen seems like the exact kind of guy that a team that doesn't want to get near the luxury tax but has major issues in the rotation should have been on. And I realize there's only a handful of guys like him in free agency to go around. But if you were really trying to just get some innings and catch lightning in a bottle, Flexen would do that. He's fair. I mean, he's he's fairly similar to Dan Straley. So you at least had two guys, you know, that, mm-hmm. that could have done it. Dan Straley and, and Flexen both had uh, similar K minus BB numbers um, in Korea. The, I think the difference um, that made Flexing more appealing to the Mariners was about a five-year age difference, um, and um, one of the one of the things that Flexing showed in 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 the KBO was improved health and improved command because he's always been been putting up good high minors uh, numbers. So by improving those two things, he got on the Mariners' radar. But it's also kind of the fact that his high minors numbers in America have been really good. Um, it's almost like a, let's let's give him the chance he never really got in America. Yeah, and I think you know it's always going to be interesting looking at players coming back over. The steamer projections for Flexen are not great. The ERA is close to five. I think they've got him at a four ninety ERA. I mean, there's obvious risk in this, but the thing I like about a signing like this, if you're trying to save money, if it doesn't work out in your rotation it might work out really well in your bullpen. You know, that's it's a nice fallback option when you're talking about players taking a deal as small as the one that Flexen got or as small as the one that Josh Lindblom got last winter, or even as small as the one that Dan Straley eventually took to stay in the KBO for another year. Yeah, and, and teams have done that before where, you know, they see something like with, with Drew Pomerantz. I think that the the Giants signed Drew Pomerantz because they said, this isn't very much. It was like two or three million dollars, and we love him as a reliever at that number. And to get him, we have to promise him that we'll give him a chance to start. It didn't work out. We put him in relief. He was insane, you know. 
and he got the deal he got the deal he wanted by being insane as a reliever right yeah i think you can do all that in good faith when you're in a position like the red Sox are in you can give someone a chance to start like give them a legitimate fair shake for 10 12 starts see how it goes they'll know how well they did too you know you don't have to lie to them no it's eventually a player who's not figuring it out as a starter in the big leagues wants to go down the super reliever route because that's the other way to get paid so you know it's not the worst thing in the world i have the davenport translations open for flexin and i can just say that um they have a comparable strikeout rate translation um both uh, strikeout rates start with seven however um the uh, steamer has a 3.8 walks per nine projected for him. And that's why I mentioned the command, the translated command, the translated walk rate for him last year was 2.6. So that's where all the upside comes in. If he um, has the same strikeout rate that he's projected to and has a walk rate, that's almost half of, of what he's projected to do. Um, you know, then I could see him having uh, the translated ERAs around a four two four four. So that's the kind of pitcher I think he'll be, like decent, yeah. decent back end pitching for fantasy. Um, you know, I don't know a twenty six year old who throws ninety four out of the pen and ninety two and a half out of the rotation, who needs his command to be good to be a kind of back end pitcher does not scream a ton of upside. I think he's kind of like a. Mm. American League only type play. Maybe a streamer for two start weeks or favorable home starts with yeah. the Mariners. But I just thought it was a, a gamble worth taking. And uh, he would have made sense for a few other teams as well, just based on those terms and the need for innings in so many places. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next, you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Um, let's talk about a few more players you wrote up in your free agent piece last week. I want to talk about George Springer for a moment because I just want him to sign somewhere. I want one more big player to sign in the next couple of days because I feel like they start to uh, go uh, in groups. And Springer, I actually underestimated him for several years because of the strikeout rates we saw early in his career and the strikeout rates we saw from him as a prospect. And I think he's aged a lot better than I would have expected. And one thing that really jumps out to me as I look at what he did in the shortened season is we saw the lowest ground ball rate of George Springer's career, just launching the ball in the air more than ever. The power looks really stable. The uh, 34 home run season back in 2017, when that happened, I thought, come on, no way. That's just not quite who he is as a player either. 
and he basically followed it up with 39 homers in 122 games in 2019, popped 14 more in 51 games during the shortened season. So I've been wrong about Springer enough times that uh, I shouldn't even be allowed to analyze him anymore. But I'm curious, where does he fit best? And our friends, uh, Glenn Colton and Rick Wolf, as part of their smart system, they always stay away from players who go to a new place on a big contract. And almost certainly George Springer's going somewhere else. It's going to be a big contract. Do you worry that he's going to be a radically different player as he leaves the Astros this winter? Uh, I mean, I would definitely say he's post-peak. Uh, you know, he's 31 years old, and um, I could see just the... Uh, for him being comfort being a thing, I mean, he spent seven years on the Astros and they had a lot of success. And there's probably to some extent portions of his swing that he either consciously or unconsciously altered to fit that park, which is a little bit weird and has those Crawford boxes where you can kind of get a cheapy home run. Um, if you pull it down, down closer to the line there, um, so there's certain sort of things that happen with comfort um, that he'll have to unlearn. But last year was not a comfortable year, and he performed so well uh, in such a in such dire straits, basically. Um, and uh, one thing that's kind of interesting to me is that he actually um, he actually ran faster last year than he has in every year except his rookie season. So he looked like even though he kind of went one for three on stolen bases, his sprint speed was the best of uh, his second best of his career. Um, and his times to first were the best since they started recording those. So um, he can absolutely play center field for, I think, two or three years out of his next contract. Um, and I think that means uh, just knowing where he's going to land is almost impossible. Because, like I said, the Rays are the only team that are above average every outfield spot, which means that everybody could use George Springer. Yeah. And, <laughs> I mean, like the Astros could bring him back. I just feel like if they were going to keep him, they would have re-signed him before he reached free agency. Like, why even let it go that far? But as you mentioned before, Chaz McCormick, never even heard that name yeah, before I mean, today. They, they have some obvious needs in the outfield. It's, it's gross. Ronnie Dawson. Uh, Miles Straw is a bench player. He just is like there's there's no way around that. So you know with Brantley presumably leaving and then Springer out there with plenty of other interested suitors, it's Kyle Tucker and probably two free agents uh, at, at a lower price than Springer, likely patrolling the Houston outfield. Yeah, they they have two needs. So that's the only thing that you might say as an argument is the Astros not ending up with them because they have to buy two outfielders. So. <laughs> It's not a bad thing to need in free agency, though, as you as we've seen with guys, you know, like we talked about in this episode, like Dahl, like Renfro. It's not going to cost a lot to at least get average-ish if, yeah. and possibly guys that are average with high ceilings for very reasonable prices. So if you have needs on your team, the outfield's not a bad place to have those. That is correct. Lots to choose from there. Uh, the other guy you mentioned sort of in passing a little earlier in this episode, DJ LeMayhew, uh, with the comments that Brian Cashman was making. He needs Yankee Stadium, like he to to be the absolute best DJ LeMayhew we've seen, right? That, that's where he has to go. Where do you think LeMayhew is most likely to get an offer that keeps him from returning to the Yankees? I mean, if it's not the Yankees, the Nationals are just the obvious one. I've already used that that 
little factlet about their non-shortstop infield being the worst in baseball. Um, but I had another name that just occurred to me. Um, the Milwaukee Brewers may hmm. have $20 million between where they ended up last year and what they've got now on their roster. And I think that roster could, could go better with DJ LeMahieu in it. And I think he could be an okay fit. It's another place that plays similar to Yankee Stadium, yeah. albeit not the same, right? You think about typically left-handed power gets boosted there, but LeMahieu, a righty who goes the other way, that fits in quite a bit. The thing that I like about him, the same as what we've talked about with Wander as a call-up for the Rays, fixing one of their greatest offensive flaws, the Brewers strike out too much. And yeah. DJ LeMahieu, even as the power wanes in the years ahead, puts a ton of balls in play. They don't have an obvious solution at first base, so I think that well, I, I think that definitely actually, makes sense. DJ LeMahieu's versatility means that you're like increasing your depth and your star power at the same time, which is very is very compelling. You know what I mean? Like, you, yeah, we can play the game. Will he play first? Will he, I, I think I would. I might stick him at third, so that Luis mm-hmm. Urias and Orlando Arcia are battling it out for starting shortstop slash uh, backup utility infielder. Right. And you can figure out first base cheap. Like it's just and if you, you just do find that, then, somebody. Then then the only real hole in your lineup is your catcher. Now you've got a pretty like pretty good lineup, man, I would say. And the pitching's not bad either. Yeah, they, they they kind of like, you know, Burns is a big deal, like what which way he goes, but they've uh, added in Lindbaum, Hauser, and Lauer, they've got some back end guys and you know they'll 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 make one more signing on the level of like not Gio Gonzalez, but you know, Gio Gonzalez-esque, you know, some right the Miley Anderson type signing veteran, they've made you know, year over they year. Think they can change the pitch mix a little bit or something like that. So you 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 kind of replace you, you push Eric Lauer to kind of a swingman. Uh, that 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 um, rotation looks uh, looks representative at least, and then you've you've got the makings of a of a league leading bullpen again. Right, and you get the shot that Freddie Peralta maybe stretches out and ends up having some success in the rotation as well. So you do have some versatility there. But LeMahieu makes a lot of this, like makes everything kind of look better. You know what I mean? It makes the lineup look better, makes your bench look better because now all of a sudden, you know, Vogie can DH or uh, be on the bench some days. Uh, you know, you're not depending on both Orlando Arcia and Luis Urias in your lineup. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's my dark horse. My dark horse is the Milwaukee Brewers. I think if it does happen, it'll be kind of one of those late signings where you know Dee LeMahieu doesn't get the money he wants, and so he just decides to wait and wait and wait, and then the Yankees move on and do whatever they they're they're threatening to do with Gleyber Torres and signing a shortstop because there are like four decent shortstops. You know, sign Simmons, push Gleyber over, sign you know Turner or some other you know power bat. To surprise people, um, you know, I, I, I then all of a sudden DJ LeMay, he's like, "Well, crap! The Yankees are out. The Nationals keep telling me they don't have a budget yet, or they don't have any money, you know." <laughs> and I'm not seeing like an obvious fit. And then the Brewers call and say, "Hey, what about 460? You know, 470?" It's not bad if that's what they end up doing. I mean, it's it's effectively the money that they would have had to give to Grandal last winter to keep him. Yeah. And then, and it's like kind of the Ryan Braun money falling off. That one makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and uh, I, I could believe in something like that. 
no arguments here, definitely addresses a major flaw with the makeup of that roster in its current form. Got one mailbag question I want to get to before we go today. This one comes from Elliot. Elliot wants to know, is there a limit of how many hitters from a single team you have on your fantasy team? Does this matter? And if so, what is the max? I think it matters more in head-to-head, right? Yeah, because the schedule and different things can you don't want them like wreak havoc on you on a short window or a, a tough matchup. Of course, could be yeah, bad. Yeah, you don't want them to like land in in the Nashville, you know, in Washington. Like they got Strasburg, you know, Scherzer, whatever in a row, you know, and just like uh, that's terrible timing for me. So I, I think uh, in head to head, I wouldn't want in my starting lineup, my regular starting lineup. I don't think I want more than two. Because if you got three in there and they and they get go O for a weekend because they're just you know running into a buzzsaw, maybe they're landing in you know L.A. for Bueller, Kershaw, you know whatever Urias. Um, then um, yeah, I think more than two. If it's three, then you're getting close to like a third of your lineup is maybe giving you zeros. Um, in yeah. Roto, I don't care as much. Um, Roto, uh, you you're you're sort of mixing and matching and, and and getting innings from play people, so you could sit a guy for for you know a borderline guy in in a bad situation, and you could um, you could get some value out of somebody on your bench or something. So I know you know three stars, you still have the same sort of problem, but also Roto is accruing stats over the full year, right? So even if they do have the bad weekend in LA all at the same time, it doesn't make you lose a matchup. It's just you know, you're down a little bit and then you go back up again when they go to Colorado or whatever. Right. And I think I've made this comparison before, whereas in, in fantasy football, there's definitely a limit on how many players you want in the same offense, because if a team's going to score 28 points or 33 points in a mm-hmm. given week, whatever your implied total is for a high scoring team, there's only so many touchdowns to go around in those circumstances. And I think with run production in baseball, I think you can have greater extremes, and I think the the limits on any one player are considerably lower. You think about correlation and just how how the pieces fit together in, in the individual performances being so much less related, even though they are related to each other. You need guys on base to drive in runs. You need guys who are good at driving in runs to score runs. Like those things matter, but they matter less in baseball than they do in football. That's how I've always kind of looked at that. So for me, if it's not a head-to-head league, I'm not sure there is a max. But I do think what starts to happen is if you have too many players from one lineup, you're taking players who are 6th, 7th, 8th in the batting order, mm. and you're losing playing time That's relative to players in other lineups who might be leading off or hitting in the heart of the order. So I do think it's just more about diminishing returns with you know how good that lineup is and where those players are hitting in that lineup and how they might use some play lose playing time based on different platoons and things that team uses that's you know that's the kind of thing where I'm I'm careful about not going overboard just because of how playing time is distributed yeah it's a good point it's a good point you don't really want um, 6 7 8 hitters that much so it probably caps around like 4 or 5 in a non head to head setting and I can't think of many times or any times off the top of my head at least where I had had that that many. many. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But I also, at the same time, I can't think of a time where I was at a draft table or an auction table and I said, I'm not, you know, I've got too many Yankees. Too many Yankees or whatever. Yeah. Right. I got too many Dodgers, so I can't have any more Dodgers. Like, I I don't think 
I don't think there's really a limit in most leagues that I'm concerned about. So hopefully that is helpful, Elliot. But I think Eno's right. The head-to-head considerations, just based on the way weekly scoring works in those formats, that's the one area where going too far could be pretty costly. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. If you'd like to drop us a line, you can do that at ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com. On Twitter, he's at Eno Saris. I am at Derek Van Riper. We are back with you on Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.